on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. There's a lot going on with this track. <laughs> you know what, man? We're two hours away from vacation. Play whatever you want. I just, <laughs> I, it doesn't matter. Death Metal Christmas coming up next. <laughs> yeah, right. Sure. We could go in any direction you want with the themed Christmas music, which is a theme unto itself. But we've needed to theme the theme. Anyway, I'm rambling. Halford and Bruff in the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are in hour two of the program. Matthew Collar, the author of the new book, Football as a Numbers Game, is going to join us in just a minute here to kick off hour two. Hour two is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech, Canada's favorite orthotics provider powered by thousands of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet? What are you waiting for? Kintech! I did it too early. Too quick. Too quick. There, he he said do it faster. Mm-hmm. But now I've done it. One more time. Sore feet? What are you waiting for? Kintech. There you go. Uh, our next guest is the author of a new book, Out Now, Christmas Shoppers. Think about it. Football is a numbers game. He joins us on the line now. Matthew Collar here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Morning, Matthew. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate you taking the time. So when we talk about the statistical revolutions in sports, I think a lot of people look at the most famous one, obviously, is what Moneyball and baseball and the the, the, the leaps that happen there from a statistical lean. Let's get into this story about the, you know, advanced analytics in football, but specifically what you wrote about. So it's a company called Pro Football Focus. Everyone that has watched football over the last few years knows what this is because it's on seemingly every broadcast with the probabilities and the grades and everything else. But take us back to the beginning here. Two years ago, you set out to uncover the story of Pro Football Focus. Where did this whole thing come from? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's a fascinating story um, because – you're exactly right that all of a sudden around 2014, we start seeing PFF everywhere because Chris Collinsworth, the famous broadcaster and former NFL player, bought the company. And then uh, he's putting their statistics on Sunday Night Football and is like, okay, uh, there's player grades. We're grading players. All right, this is interesting. And then you start seeing it show up everywhere in the media on you know ESPN. They're using their stats. Here's how fast the guy's getting rid of the football. Like, oh, okay, we're getting all these other layers. And then it starts to grow and grow as far as people understanding you know from the outside, like offensive line play and how many pressures someone has. And then uh, you know how many pressures a defensive end has. That's maybe a little bit more telling than sacks. And I was, I was really fascinated by this. And, and, of course, my day job is covering the Minnesota Vikings. So I've been using these stats and layering them into my reporting and asking coaches about them for years. And I thought, you know what? I have no idea where all this came from. So then I uh, had met the owner of PFF, who is basically football's Billy Bean. Uh, and I did not realize that um, at the time because I didn't know that there was a whole other wing to the company that was working with all 32 NFL teams and shaping the way that every single team operates behind the scenes. So when I found that out, I thought, why does nobody know this? (laughs) (laughs) Because when, 
when we think about analytics, we mostly just think of like Troy Aikman being like, I don't know, Joe Buck seems like the analytics say they should, you know, not punt here, but I think they should punt. Like that's the only thing we think of with analytics. And what I discovered was that their data, which has layers and layers and layers to it, has influenced everything that teams do. Their systems internally that tie in with their video use PFF's data for game planning, for know, you know, determining what coverages they're going to play, what schemes they're going to run, uh, everything. PFF has its fingers in, and uh, it's really changed the way that teams game plan and it's it's changed the way the teams think it's changed the way the teams draft i mean it's it's really been uh, a remarkable influence from this company over the last few years is it all proprietary data that pff has because you know we cover a lot of hockey up here in canada and there are some websites uh, i can think of one called natural statric that uses a lot of the nhl the league produced stats and puts that into different contexts um, but there are some also some private analytics companies out there that you need to pay for and they work with nhl teams and um but so is, is did pff are these is this all proprietary data for this company yeah, so there's two different sort of systems. There's the system that you and I can go to pff.com and use, and we can get a lot of data there. I mean, we can, like I mentioned, we could see how fast, you know, Geno Smith is getting rid of the football from the time that he snaps it to the time that he throws it. We can look at the quarterback pressures. They've added layers to that stuff that media and fans can use for fantasy or whatever. But then there is the whole other proprietary side, which has an insane amount of uh, information, including they have a tool that draws up every single play. Like it, it uses the information that uh, trackers have written down to draw up every single route, every blocking combination, every coverage. So just for example, if you're game planning, if you're the Seattle Seahawks and you're game planning, uh, you, you could say, uh, you know, uh, this other team plays cover two on 80% of third down and long. And so here's what we're going to draw up to try to take advantage of that. But the other team knows that they play cover two on 80% because they have their own data as well. And each week, every team in the NFL gets a report for PFF that shows all of these things, like all, all of the situations, all of the formations, all of the personnel packages that they used and the success and all the data that goes along with that. And they've only added more and more and more layers to it. And so, I mean, that's the type of analytics that they are using to prepare for each game. And I think that people don't necessarily realize that. They think like PFF and the grades. And the grades are like a controversial element. Like uh, the Vikings general manager, Kwesi Adapomenta, said that he loves the grades and he used them to get ahead when he was in San Francisco that ultimately led to his job as the GM of the Vikings. But there are other people in the league who will tell you that, no, the teams will grade their own players. But I think that the outside world thought that meant they were just blowing off PFF. But that's not the case because all the coaching staffs are using all that other data to game plan. So I, I tell a story in the book about the Eagles game-winning play in the Super Bowl in 2017 was because one of their coaches found a little hole in the New England Patriots defense using the data, and that's how they drew up that play for Zach Ertz to score the game-winning touchdown. 
How many people work for this company, and what do you think it's worth? Uh, a lot of people work for this company. That's the thing that, that I also didn't realize because, you know, I know like five people there that have been coming on my podcast for years, but uh, what I didn't realize is that they have layers of data trackers and graders. So there is, a, I mean, hundreds of people who are gathering the data for each play. So they watch a play and they gather everything that happened. I mean, every route combination, blocking combination, everything, and then grade that play on this scale that they invented for the grades. And there's a, a 2,000 word uh, or 2,000 page PDF or something that the graders have to look at to, uh, you know, kind of every scenario has been played out with different types of blocks and different types of routes and how to grade these things. So it's become this wildly scientific uh, type of process. And then they do an initial grading. And then there's another group that does cross-checking. So you end up with someone's grading it and there's a cross-check. So if a, you know, if a quarterback throws a, an interception, there's going to be somebody who, who grades that play, figures out everything that happened on the field on the interception, and then uh, it's actually Bruce Gradkowski, a former NFL quarterback, who will then cross-check that interception and decide, did it have the right grade? Was it the right coverages? And there's, a, I mean, tons of people who have played in the NFL or coached or whatever who are a part of this grading system. So it's, and this all came from a British dude who was a football <laughs> fan who just wanted to know if offensive linemen were better than he thought or worse than he thought. That's how he was inspired to, to start this company, which is insane. We're speaking to Matthew Collar. He is the author of the new book, Football as a Numbers Game, the history of pro football focus and how a data-driven approach changed football forever. Uh, Matthew, you mentioned all of the you know, sort of high-profile individuals involved in this story. Chris Collinsworth bought it. You mentioned Gradkowski working for the company. So uh, Neil Hornsby, the founder, you, you brought it up. You alluded to it there. Uh, from the NFL hotbed of England in the 80s uh, has <laughs> created this monolith in terms of stats and, and a really important part of the modern game. Can you tell us a little bit more about the founder? Yeah, yeah, and Neil is yeah the the Billy Bean of this situation, and there are people who I quoted in the NFL in the book who say Neil Hornsby belongs in the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a contributor for how much PFF has influenced the NFL. Uh, and so Neil was a huge football fan, sort of at random. Just uh, he would listen to games on the radio in England, catch a little bit here or there in the 80s uh, on like you know the weekend where it'd be some random sports highlight show or something like that but he came he became really obsessed with it and he started to read football magazines and he kind of became annoyed with some of the statements that would get made in the <laughs> magazines like hey this offensive guard is the best pulling guard in the league and he'd be like yeah, how could you even know that or whatever and so he just started once he could get his hands on watching more games with like DVDs and stuff. He started watching the games and just created this little database of his grading them on his own little system. And he was starting to get to know other football fans on message boards. You guys remember message boards? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. If someone's going to have to explain them to the kids. I tried to do that in the book, what the message boards are. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so he meets these other fans who are kind of interested in this idea and they just started it entirely for fun 
for no other reason than that and started to put it in Excel sheets. And then, uh, you know, he because of his job, he was like a contractor. He knew some programmers and things like that. And they just started putting it all together. And at some point, they were able to publish it on the Internet. And the New York Giants saw it and thought that the data was accurate. And this is where they were just doing small levels of data, like who's on the field, because they didn't use to publish that. The Giants saw it, liked the data, and called Neil, and that's where it started. And, and, he, and it started to build it from there, because once he found that the NFL was interested, he's like, well, we've got to figure out how to do more. We've got to you know, get more teams involved and everything else. And it took a long time before Chris Collinsworth bought it, to be in a position where their data was, you know, accurate enough and they've tried, you know, created a scientific, scientific enough system. But as they went along, as more teams got involved, the data became more accurate because the teams would tell them like, Hey, you know, these plays you're grading is negative, but actually, you know, we look at it like this and so forth. So they've really been influenced deeply by the NFL. So when you look at those grades and you, I don't know if I agree with that grade, now, no one thinks it's perfect, right? No, no stat in any sport is perfect, but that grade has a, has a lot that has gone into it, including, you know, offensive line coaches in the NFL telling them how to grade certain blocks and things like that over the years. So it's, it's really been a, a long and an interesting road for them to be where they are now. So for the casual fan that's just watching the NFL games, in the last decade – um, what has pro football focus impacted the most? Like, are there st- uh, strategies that you can see playing out on the field in real time and go, that's a PFF effect? Yeah, I think that broadly, you know, so everybody focuses on the like going for fourth down, which is not necessarily a PFF thing. Like they didn't just say, Hey, football, start going for fourth down. But (laughs) I think a major part of the influence has been thinking about these things from a numbers perspective because the stats have been so effective for these teams to use in their game planning and in their front office decisions uh, because they can just add so many more layers to their analysis than just, hey, my, my coach has a feeling or my scout has a feeling. It's really shaped like more of a way of thinking of like we have to have data to back up our decisions. So, I mean, just for example, I mean, most teams now, every time your coach is making a decision to punt, to go for it, to go for two, there's some nerd with a headset on telling them what he thinks right. in, the, in the booth. I mean, which you never would have dreamed of. I, we used to kind of make – like the the joke about Madden players being better than NFL coaches, and, and the gap has been closed because they have analytics people telling them in the middle of the game, hey, you should probably go for it here. And even just like in the draft, it, it's not just, oh, well, I, I, I've seen this player and I know him and I think he's great. It's like, okay, but you have to prove from his data also that there's reason that we should be drafting him over other player X. So I think that it's it's like – hard to tell someone, hey, watch TV, and then you'll see it. And that's what's different from, like, baseball, for example, when they stopped. I'm glad the stolen base came back, but they stopped stealing bases. It was, like, more obvious. I think that the increase in passing, increase in short passing uh, has been a huge part of this. Um, That, But, you know, really I think it's the adaptations from week to week from teams schematically where I think back in the day – teams would kind of run their offense 
and it was our offense versus your defense, but now they can make changes so intricately in game planning from week to week. And again, that is hard to see. And because it's always shape-shifting, so like in 2020, teams were throwing it deep down the field, and then defenses changed to play a defense to stop that. So then the next year it was underneath passes. Like, but that's but that's part of what they're using the data to chase all the time. It's like the the trends and what's succeeding and what's you know failing and, and things like that. So I think it, it is a little bit more difficult to just point the finger to and say, oh well, they shoot threes all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which has made it maybe less noticeable and uh, out there as it has been in, in baseball and basketball. Uh, the book is Football is a Numbers Game. It's available now at Amazon.ca or chapters.indigo.ca if you want to get a last-minute gift for Christmas. There it is. Matthew, thanks a lot for doing this today. We really appreciate it. Congrats on the book. I hope it sells well. Enjoy the holidays, and uh, have a happy New Year. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it as well. It's Matthew Collar, the author of the book, Football is a Numbers Game. I find the people that start these types of projects fascinating because if you think of what this Neil Hornsby fella would have had to do, all the work he would have had to do, charting the games, collecting the games, watching the games, organizing all the data. Mm-hmm. He did it by hand because he like, started the, in the 80s. Just, just the time. Yeah. Like we we all have, you know some semblance of attention deficit now, right? Like how, 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 what were you talking about? Yeah, exactly. What's you know, he on about? So there's uh do you know how we always use the word, the German word, uh, schadenfreude? Yes. Right. There's another this German's got a word for everything there. There's uh yeah, well, there's another, there's another German word that I learned recently and it's called Seatsfleisch. Go on. Seatsfleisch. Seatsfleisch means the ability to sit down and do things for a long period of time. And it literally means like sitting flesh, like ah, the ability, the, yeah, the ability seats flesh. Like this guy's got the ability to sit down and work for 10 hours at a time. I've never heard I, this before. N- well, you, you've no never kidding. had seats flesh. Um, no. Yeah, like you, yeah, because you were, you were like, oh, I heard about it. And then I was on to something else. I right? do three hours of seats flashing every morning. But anyway, but you're not focused. I'm kind of focused. Mm. What are you talking about again? Yeah, exactly. I, I I just find that stuff fascinating, like the ability to build something like that, which comes out of essentially a hobby, right? Like I I, I doubt Neil Horn Neil Hornsby ever thought that you know his company would grow to this length. He just he was just frustrated, right? Like it was a hobby. He was just like, yeah, this guy says he's the best pulling guard in the NFL. How do you? objectively say that and he wanted to find a way yeah it's curious people too right? like you've already lost interest in this conversation right well, like I was just you're, about to well ben, ben has a good question that he asked the group that yeah. i was we were i was hoping you'd ask uh, our previous guest but you ran out of time yeah. just out of curiosity like how i wonder if they do measure how do they measure you know someone's momentum of you know getting on a hot streak let's say if you make three threes in a row, yeah. you're more likely to make the fourth because you just saw the ball go in. But your I, analytics say, I'm a 40% three-point. I think that's the toughest thing to uh, to account for in all these models, and we see it in baseball when a pitcher who is feeling it gets yanked because the analytics say to yank the guy. Exactly. Right? Like, And that's where you need an organizational plan and an organizational um, are we either going to go 100% by the numbers or are we going to allow ourselves to say, hey, 
you know, we're all human beings out here. Emotions, confidence play a role in all this. Is right? there even an analytical model for momentum? Like, is that a thing? Because like, some people be don't thing? even believe in momentum. Some people don't believe in momentum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's that, who that old Kings coach, Andy Murray? Yes. He Andy Murray be- does not believe in momentum. He didn't believe in momentum. And I don't believe necessarily in momentum from game to game. In fact, no, moment I to believe- moment. I believe, no, 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 but like game to game, I actually believe there's an opposite momentum. Like if you play badly in a game, you're more likely to play well in the next game. But I think in the moment, and we were talking about John Tortorella earlier, and he's one of the best guys in terms of like trying to teach his team to remain composed during games. And Mm -hmm. he would always talk about like, we got to handle the momentum swings better. And I get it, right? Because we've all seen hockey games that turn, right? We've all seen any game that turns, right? And you're like, the first 10 minutes of the game, like, oh, the Canucks are going to kill these guys, right? And then the other team gets a little momentum, and all of a sudden... Um, the 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 game doesn't look like anything like at the beginning of the game. Yeah, and back to your earlier point about the people behind this sort of thing. A lot of it comes from not even necessarily an intellectual curiosity, just a curiosity period where you see a void and you want to be the person that's filling it. I mean, that's what this was essentially. Was there was a real void of numbers and things that explained what was going on and the statements that people were making during games. And Mm -hmm. football is obviously like such a behemoth in the U S that there's a lot of data available because there's so many instances and the way that the game's broken up. It's a lot like baseball in that regard that you've got these sort of individual instant moments. You've got so many different positions and they all add to a cumulative effect. Right? So I think that that's a really cool thing. Trying to bridge the gap between data and numbers and some dude in a pub in the UK (laughs) writing things down on a spreadsheet and then applying it to professional football in America. The really interesting thing is that they got the buy-in from the ex-professional players to validate the info, validate the data, validate the claims. Yeah, there's relationships with the teams. And that's that's really important. And there's, they allow, they allow debate on the grades that are it's almost like uh it's almost more like an academic process as opposed to just like sports guys uh tim in vancouver texts in i've been in a baseball pool for over 30 years that we started in high school we used to have to take the stats every tuesday from the province and compile them all manually every week it took forever and it's hilarious to look at now i remember my buddy and i used to keep stats from our tecmo baseball wow just because it was like, it, I don't know, it was fun. Well, right? For uh, us, we were Mo, dorks. Well, Mo just come on the show before in time yeah. when he did his stratomatic baseball back in the 80s. Yeah. And this is how it was done. That was the origin story for what you're seeing now. Mm-hmm. When you watch a broadcast, you've got 9 million different stats popping up all over the screen. Um, okay, we got a lot more to get to on the Halford & Brush Show on Sportsnet 650. Open segment coming up. We'll dive into the Dunbar Lumber text message in basket at 650-650. Answer any of your questions, Canucks and or otherwise. I know some of you are clamoring uh, for us to get back to more Connor Garland talks. So we can do that. Eight o'clock hour. Uh, we've got who's our eight o'clock guest again? Oh, Sat's Sat. going to join us. Right out of forgot about that. Satyar Shah is going to join us in the eight o'clock hour. Also in that eight o'clock hour, we're going to give away a pair of tickets. Canucks, Ottawa, January second at Rogers Arena. It's a Tuesday night game. We're giving away a pair of tickets to the best what we learned. So hashtag it WWL. Put a ticket emoji into the text. 
you will be entered into the grand prize contest to see the Canucks and Senators on Tuesday, January 2nd at Rogers Arena. Seats flash. Seats flash. Seats flash. Seats flash. It actually translates to sitting meat. Ah, the good old sitting meat. You're listening to the Alfred and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drans. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Wednesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are in hour two of the program. Hour two is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling, Vancouver's premier metal recycler. Pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle. You get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. Open segment here on the Halbro Show. We have 90 minutes left till we're on vacation until 2024. Very much looking forward to it. Although I will miss A Dog and Basketball Ben. Oh. Not thank Bruff. You. I gotta see Bruff on Saturday. But um everyone else, Laddie, wherever you are, wearing your tiny little Christmas hat. It's been a fun year. I look forward to 2024. But yeah, 2023 has been uh it's been pretty good. And thank you most importantly to all of our listeners, all of you texting in right now. Uh, we'll try and respond to as many of you as possible. It's very nice that you took the time out of your morning. Yeah, everyone's so nice today. <laughs> yeah, to say thank you. We genuinely do appreciate it. If we can't get back to you via text, just know that we are receiving uh, all of your very kind words, and we appreciate them very much. Okay. Uh, let's get into some of the stuff that happened in the National Hockey League last night. We kind of touched on some of these, but there are some stories as they pertain to either what's going on with the Vancouver Canucks or big picture stuff around the NHL. So we mentioned, I wanted to get to this with Merrick, but we, we fell short on time. The Oilers lost their third straight last night. Uh, there's a sidebar story here. They lost to the, oh, there he is, Bo Horvat. He's on the TV. The wagon. Yes, the wagon that is the New York Islanders. I don't. This is one of the most unexpected in-season turnarounds because I had Lane Lambert right up there with all these other coaches that were yeah. either getting fired or going to get fired. Especially when that picture that Wyshynski took came out. Right, remember that? One? It was like, Lane Lambert did his post-game media availability at a folding picnic table, <laughs> and, and everyone was commenting on his socks. Yeah, and it didn't cover up the fact that he was seated. Yeah, with his pant legs up around his shins, and he had on these frump. I can only describe them as frumpy socks. It looked like his parole hearing. It was not good. I don't yeah. know if they were cutting the budget in New York or what. <laughs> they should do that for every interview now, for every post game press. No, that should never be the again. Setup. No. Everyone deserves a podium. Yep, everyone gets a podium. There should I don't know. Be- I think the cheaper the better. Anyway, point being, the Islanders are on fire right now. You know mm-hmm. who else is on fire? Horvat. Yeah. Yeah. He has eight goals and nine assists. He has 17 points in his last 11 games. The guy's a top 30 scorer in the NHL now. Mm-hmm. He's got more points than like Sebastian Ajo and Alexander Barkov. It's crazy. Anyway, the Islanders beat the Oilers last night. So here's a really weird 
look at the Chris Knobloch era, it's got that uh, terrific eight-game win streak, which really mm-hmm. catapulted the Oilers. But it didn't start right away. No, they started with a three-game losing streak yep. after the initial win that he got in his debut mm-hmm. against the Islanders. And then another three-game losing streak. Now, if you look at the totality of it, they're 10-6 and six under Knobloch. That's fine. It's pretty decent for a first-time NHL head coach. But they're going to need to play at a better clip if they're going to get into the playoffs. I actually have a text in. Oh. Um, it, the text came in. My mind is wandering during the football talk. Okay. Uh, the pressure on this Oilers team from here on out is immense. They just can't afford to lose games and give up points. It is a very difficult environment to live in. You squeeze the stick and every mistake is magnified and costly. It is going to be really tough to maintain the mindset to keep pushing. So over at The Athletic, mm-hmm. um, they have playoff probability odds. And the Edmonton Oilers are at 66%. I am surprised that, that it's that high. I really am. I'm not. By the way, the Canucks are at 97%. So uh, um, try not a, to screw that up. That's awesome, fellas. I don't. I have, no, I have no analysis other than that is awesome. I love. Is that Dom LeCision? I take everything bad. I bag. I said about the guy. That's great. 97%. So um, I think the the big thing with the Oilers is who they're chasing. It just doesn't look that hard to catch these teams. Arizona is still in the second wildcard spot. After that, you got St. Louis, Calgary, Minnesota, Seattle. Maybe Minnesota could be tough for them. Uh, Maybe Calgary could be tough for them, but I think they're probably going to find a way in. And the interesting thing will be, are they going to find a way? They're probably not going to catch the Canucks or the LA Kings or the Vegas Golden Knights. So does that mean... A wild card spot is most likely for them. And then how do the division winners think about playing the Edmonton Oilers in the first round? They don't love it. They don't love it. I so, that's yeah. my that's my take. I am not convinced that they're getting there. I know I, I'm not. Why? Well, I'm not convinced. They're I just the thir- think they probably they're will. They're at the thirty game mark. They're a third of the way through the season. They've got a sub five hundred record. They mm-hmm. have one good winning streak. They are stuck on twenty seven points. So there's seven back. Of the wild card. Now, Rick, never mind who the teams are. They got two of the top five players in the world. Yeah, and they've had them for the first 30 games of the season, but too. But you also yeah. know that this team can get hotter than maybe any team in the NHL. Yeah. And their goaltending can get colder <laughs> than any <laughs> goaltending tandem in the NHL. Jack Campbell apparently not doing too well down in the AHL, just for what it's worth. The biggest issue that they've got, and we've seen this countless times when teams try and rally to get back into playoff position, is there's so many teams in front of them. So you can say, well, all they got to do is make up seven points on Arizona. Yeah, but they also have to leapfrog four teams mm-hmm. in the standings. Like a and- team like Minnesota could, in theory, keep pace with the Edmonton Oilers and even finish above them. My biggest concern, if I'm an Oilers, I don't care if the Oilers make the playoffs. Quite frankly, oh, I'd like I to do. see them not. I think it would be hilarious well, I hope if they, they didn't. I hope they don't make the playoffs. Exactly. Because now the Canucks are a playoff team. I don't want to see the Edmonton Oilers in the playoffs. I mean, the Canucks, the way they're playing, winning the division, <laughs> I think it's unlikely, but it's not out of the question. Can you imagine, can you imagine if the Canucks, can you imagine this, okay? What? Canucks have this miracle season, and their PDO keeps going at whatever it is, and Drance's brain just explodes because he's never seen anything like this. And that would be a, just a, you've seen his head, right? Mm-hmm. That would just be a cleanup for the, the ages. Yes. Um, imagine the Canucks get in uh, and win the division, and then they match up against the Oilers. 
That'd be great. They kill the Oilers. <laughs> Oilers would be like, oh, God, not again. <laughs> what a guys dream. again. <laughs> what a dream matchup. I, well, would you like to see that, though? I'd prefer to get Arizona. Yeah, 100%. Right? You know? <laughs> I'd prefer to any of these teams. Nashville. Yeah. If, I mean, Canucks have Canucks owned, owned Nashville. owned Nashville just as much as they've owned Edmonton this year. Uh, all I'm saying with Edmonton is... You, you know how you in the last segment you were asking about momentum and the is there some sort of statistic that can show momentum? Mm-hmm. Right now, the Edmonton Oilers are <laughs> they're prone to the good momentum and the bad momentum because they're the streakiest team. They go on these huge stretches where nothing goes right. The goaltending doesn't look good. They give up a ton of goals, and then they come back and they can throw together an eight-game win streak. Mm-hmm. Which is exactly why I think a team wouldn't want to see them in the playoffs. You don't want to see them in the playoffs, 100%. I do, I'm not sure that they've got the wherewithal to dig their way out of this again and again. That uh, would be my point there. Matt and Ladner is texting in, if you're grading the players in terms of value and fit and role, Casey DeSmith gets an A+. He's played amazingly and has been a fantastic teammate. Um, listen, this is something that this show has talked about a lot. Do not underrate the importance of the backup goalie. Mm-hmm. And we've compared it to the NFL and said, imagine if... The NFL, your starting quarterback was like a goalie in that your starting quarterback played 12 games out of the year and the backup played four or five or whatever, yep. right? Yep. You'd want to make sure you had a pretty good backup in there, right? Because that could be the difference between making or missing the playoffs. It's no different in the NHL. It is absolutely no different. Your backup goalie can be the difference between making or missing the playoffs. What is dismissed? 6-2-2? Two, and two? That seems important. He's been – that's been the best goaltending tandem in the NHL this year. It has for, to be. For, I mean, there's others that are in the conversation, but it's hilarious that on top of everything else, oh, the Canucks have three 40-point guys. Oh, they have three guys in the top 10 in scoring. Oh, they – Hughes and Hironic have combined for 70 points in 33 games. And the goaltending tandem has been one of the best, can, if not the best, in the NHL. Can we actually talk about how crazy it was that the Canucks went into last season with such inexperience behind Thatcher Demko? And when Demko went out, you had a bunch of guys with like a I mean, combined Delia, number. Delia had played, right? Not much, man. I mean, not he, much, man. Yeah, Spencer couple- Martin and Colin Delia, and then they're like, they're like, I'm not ready for this. Are you ready for this? And they're like, I'm not ready for this. Are you ready for this? And it was, I mean, it just snowballed. It got worse and worse. What was their combined? How many combined NHL starts had Spencer Martin and Colin Delia had when they were the tandem? Like forty. About that. Delia was about right. 40 on his own. Martin had even less. So, yeah, I mean, well, here the thing with DeSmith was I wasn't exactly sure what the Canucks were getting when they acquired him from Montreal mm-hmm. because he kind of got jettisoned out of Pittsburgh, and then he was a facilitator. He, wouldn't, he was never long for Montreal. Yeah. And they got him. now, And they were able to move the Pearson money out and get a backup goalie. But I remember thinking, well, this one's going to be interesting because – you know, primarily uh, Eastern Conference guy. Hadn't seen a ton of them. I was just glad there was another candidate in there. Even if he didn't, like, just bring in I another I liked what guy. he represented yeah. in a veteran guy mm-hmm. that had played more. I didn't realize that he was almost the perfect, like, hand-in-glove fit because he can play. Like, I didn't expect him to play last night. When they announced, when I saw in the morning skate that he was going to be the starter, I was like, oh, that's a decision. Mm-hmm. But it almost seems like they're... <laughs> I don't want to say testing them, but they're like, we're going to keep you on the pine for a couple of weeks, and then we're going to throw you in. Or we're going to go back to you quicker than you expected. They're almost testing them to see 
what his abilities are as a backup, mm-hmm. and he's just ticking box after box. Like, and that goal that he allowed to Lozon yesterday, it was one of the very few that you would have said, "Oh, we wanted that one back this mm-hmm. year." I mean, and it wasn't even that bad of a goal. It's a pretty good nice shot. You, see, it was just his reaction. Yeah, to yeah. It. He was hanging his head, and he was kind and of. The second goal was like, it was a it was a meaningless goal. Yeah, right? It didn't matter. Canucks had kind of started yeah, throwing your skating. own net if you want. They were like already on the plane. Mm-hmm. Oh, is the game not over? Um, by the way, Casey DeSmith pending UFA, so the Canucks might might have to find another guy next year. Now Archer Seelovs could be ready for next year, but it's a big risk. When you go from the AHL yep. to the NHL, uh, speaking of last season, um, here's a, I th- this is a good text and worth discussing. Following on what Merrick was saying about having Tortorella during a rebuild, maybe think about bringing in Tockett last year, which did impact our chances of getting Bedard. Wondering if we would have had, quote-unquote, the start this year if Tockett didn't come in when he did and what that would have meant for everything right now. It is impossible to say what the Canucks would have been if they had kept the coaching staff in place all the last season and brought in Tockett this offseason. But I do think from what the Canucks have said, and I will trust them on this, that it did make a difference to bring in Tockett last season when they did in order to prepare for next season. And that is something they said from the very beginning when people were saying, don't change anything. Keep losing. Get Bedard. And hey, when you watch Bedard play, you understand why people were saying that. But it is a lot to bring in a new coach and have him do all the teaching in training camp. I remember there was a training camp when Travis Green was like, we got to teach these guys how to do a bunch of new things. And I think it might have been the training camp where Petey and Hughes were trying to get their contracts done so they weren't part of it. And they got off to a horrendous start, Yeah, right? It is a lot of things that Rick Tockett has been having to teach them. And because he's been able to teach them all this stuff, now they actually have the luxury of taking days off and mm-hmm. not practicing. Remember last season when Tockett came in and said, all I want to do is practice. I want to have a practice every day. Whenever we can, we got to practice because we got to work on stuff, right? Yeah. And there was also the whole thing about the culture changing and empowering this new leadership group, well, that would have been a lot for a new coach to do. He was able to start that process last season and carry it into the offseason. I think that's been really important for the Canucks. Yeah, I, I think there was probably a 0% chance that the Canucks have this type of start, hashtag the start, if Tockett is brought in at the beginning of this year as opposed to last year. Not only did he lay the groundwork, fundamental groundwork, he mentioned one of those practices. It was literally you, Myers, you stand here. And then you, Pedersen, you stand here. And this is how we're going to do it. He stopped the practice to go no, Every it time like there was a pass, mm-hmm. every, every time it was like a defensive zone awareness. It was really quite funny, actually, at the NHL level. Pass back to the point. Okay, everyone stop. Yeah. Are we all in the right position here? And you, the, yeah, it was the yeah. Cool, it was the cool wet sack practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Kuzmenko, you're standing completely the wrong way. I remember yeah, working that show with you guys. You still are. You still are. Yeah. What? I remember working that show with you guys. We were like going through the clip of like stop. Yeah. Yeah. Look where you are on the ice. Yeah. What do we do? You're now? wrong. Yeah. JT, what do we do now? No. Yeah. That's. 
And he's like, oh, sticks at the bench, coach. And if okay, Miller go passes get it to stick. Hughes, where do we go now? Right. Yeah. So that's one aspect of it, but not to belabor <laughs> that gag, although it was a good one. The other thing that you got when you brought Tockett in, when you brought him in, is he was able to identify two crucial things, who he could coach with and who he couldn't coach with. Because they made a lot of roster changes that I would suggest were influenced by the head coach. Oh, yeah. Right? That's a big part of this. Mm-hmm. He he looked at his penalty kill and he was like, well, it's historically bad. And a lot of the guys that are currently doing it are bad at it. So they went out and it hasn't been a perfect <laughs> fit, right? But they added and it's particular personnel. Marginally better now. Yeah, they added personnel, though. Because <laughs> he realized, I can't coach this particular group up. So we're going to go out and need to get the Bluegers of the worlds and the suitors and everybody else that they've brought in. So I think that was another key part of it. If Tockett had come in, I don't know, closer to the start of the summer and, and had missed the free agent and trade window, I don't think that you would have had the kind of team that you have right now. Uh, you wanted to play some um, Devon Taves audio. I was, I was kind of surprised by this. So as we were doing the whip around from last night, um, the, Colorado Avalanche lost to Chicago in Chicago. So it's embarrassing to lose to the Blackhawks. They outshot the Blackhawks pretty pretty aggressive. But they're a really bad hockey team, the Blackhawks are. Um, And then I kind of was looking at this, and I'm like, well, no big deal for the Avs. They had won a bunch of games previously. They're 19-11-2. They're second in their division. There's only six teams in the NHL that have 40 points or more, and the Avs are one of them. So who's complaining? It's Colorado. They yeah. they won a Stanley Cup recently. They got lots of fast guys. Anyway, point being, I was like, I don't understand why anyone would be lots upset. Of fast guys. Yeah, they're fast. They skate really good. I don't understand why anyone would be upset in Colorado. But this Devon Taves audio is kind of making the rounds on social media yesterday because he sounded genuinely pissed off. I'll play it for you now. See if you can hear any commonalities about what the problems are, and if they relate to any hockey teams that you may have followed. Here's Devon Taves following Colorado's 3-2 loss to the Chicago Blackhawks. I mean, it's, it's self-awareness. We need guys that know, you know, know how to play in our system, how to, how to play our game, and, and know what it takes. And uh, We have guys in here, I think we got some guys that think they're playing well, and I think they're kidding themselves at this point. It's, it's frustrating to play with. Uh, and, you know, play out there when, when you got guys that think they're playing well and, and they're doing things that, you know, you have no idea what play they're going to make or, or where they're going to be on the ice. And uh, it's it's tough to play in this league when, when you don't know where your teammates are going to be. So, um, you know, that's where a lot of the frustration stems from. So I can't tell if this is maybe he, they just caught him in a moment, like Devon mm-hmm. Taves is having a moment, or if there's something more there. The Avs well, are... They have a lot of new players. Yeah, but they're... I mean, they're... They they started six zero and zero. They were perfect to start the year. They were they were rolling mm-hmm. a wagon, if you will, and then they got their record out to fifteen six and zero, and then they just sort of been a like basically a sub five hundred, barely sub five hundred team for the last ten or eleven games. Part of me was thinking maybe this is what the really elite teams do. Like they don't accept average. They hold themselves yeah. to a really high account. But the the, the quote, James is like, I got paid. I right. can say whatever I want. Well, that's yeah. He's got security, right? I'd love to have that kind of security. <laughs> the the point I think here is, and when he said, you know, it's so difficult to play when you're out there with guys that don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I was like, that sounded like the Canucks last year. But also, as you brought you brought up a good point. The churn in Colorado 
has been pretty constant over the last couple of off seasons. They've lost a lot of key players. They've had to bring in a lot of new faces. And I do wonder if maybe behind the veneer, the shine of the record, this is a team that's a little bit more disjointed than we think. So that's a message for you, Sam Malinsky. That's a guy that plays. You know who gets uh, a lot of uh, criticism from uh, Av's Twitter, which is a thing, Mm -hmm. and I don't like hearing it? Bo Byram. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he gets he, struggling a little bit. Well, if you look at his production, it's not great. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of people that are saying like he just kind of looks a little lost out there. I, I have not watched enough of the Colorado Avalanche's defensive deployment to know mm-hmm. exactly what's going on. I apologize, I was lax in that department. But I, you know, when you wade into the comments section, and I know it's Twitter and the echo chamber and everything, but um, there are some legitimate complaints about. He's been a guy that's been asked, and he's still relatively young, to shoulder more and more and more of a load because they've had some departures on that blue line, right? And they need him to be a guy that performs now because he's still on a relatively well, inexpensive contract. Kim McCarr's hurt too, isn't he? I mean, that's a big part of it. Yeah. They've had injuries, and, you know, between the injuries to like McCarr, Landis Cog, and on and on and on, and then you just get whittled away. And that's I mean, I always talk about this: good teams in the hard cap get chip punished. away, chip away, chip away. You lose them, Nazem Kadri, and then JT Confer steps up and provides mm-hmm. a good second line center, and then he leaves. Right. And it's like, well, we can't keep losing these guys, and then you're filling the gaps with the Ryan Johansons of the world. Yep. You're taking a flyer on Jonathan Drouin, mm-hmm. and it's not that they're not good players, but you know, when you keep bringing in new faces. Part of it is a hope and a prayer. Like, we hope this will work. We hope that Ryan Johansson will click as a second line. Turning over a team, I think, is very important so the team doesn't get stale. But it's also a challenge because all those guys have got to be on board with how the team has had success in the past. Mm -hmm. And we see the problems that arise when you got different styles of players. For example, in St. Louis, Berube's Blues had a way of playing. Or Jordan Cairo and... Robert Thomas, those types of guys, are they capable of playing that? Is that the right style for them? Um, By the way, there was a guy on the Canucks last season um, who made some pretty interesting comments about guys not knowing where they're supposed to be on the ice, and that was Ethan Bear. And there's a little bit of news today in that the Capitals PR Twitter account has just tweeted out that the Caps are expected to officially sign defenseman Ethan Bear at a later date, Bear will join the team for today's morning skate as he continues his rehabilitation process. Huh. So we all knew that Ethan Bear was most likely to go to the Washington Capitals. It had been fairly widely reported, but this seems to make it official. Uh, uh, Satyar Shah. I don't think I've ever used his first full name. His full name, Satyar. You did. Yeah, you just did Sat it. Sat Shah is going to join us next. We'll talk more about all these Canucks issues, most of them good, um, ahead of tomorrow's game in Dallas and then Saturday's game against San Jose. That's a home game, and then the Canucks have a few days off for the Christmas break. We'll talk to Sad about all the issues, again, mostly good, facing this team. You're listening to the Alfred & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.